Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, hello again. Um, we did well. My notes got all wet when it splashed, so we're, we're, we're doing good this morning. Uh, we are grateful to have you here, uh, grateful to be able to sing and to proclaim what Christ has done for you and for me. And it's our prayer that um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you would learn that he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to pay for your sins, to give you life an everlasting life with him. Uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to be studying again in the book of Daniel this morning. Uh, before we do that, there's two things I want to mention. The first is this. Kids, if you have your sermon notes, love seeing those. Um, there's, uh, last week it was green. I think it may be green again. If you have a sermon note paper, love to see the pictures. And the thing is that you are learning in that, um, in that endeavor as we walk through the teaching this morning. Uh, the second thing I want to do is just open in a word of prayer um, for the people around the world, especially thinking of those in the Ukraine, those in Russia, those in these parts of the world where there's a lot of strife and a lot of chaos and a lot of hardship. Most of it, all of it caused by man. <laughs> Um, but we want to pray for them this morning. We want to pray for believers in these countries to represent Christ well amidst a culture, amidst a time in which it's really, really difficult. So would you join me in praying for our brothers and sisters around the world? Um, God, I'm reminded this morning, even as we partner with people in mission work around that region, I'm reminded, God, that you hold them in your hand just like you hold us in, in our hand. And God, I pray that you would give us a heart to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Father, that you would give us a heart for peace and for truth to reign. God, in all these situations, protect the weak, protect the vulnerable. God, bring along people in the message of Jesus to these worlds in which there is great chaos because, um, Lord, every one of us faces an ending of our life here on this earth. The only sure thing we have is Christ. I pray, God, that they would cling to you today. Father, would you prepare our hearts and our minds right now by the working of your Spirit to hear your word. God, would you prepare our, our ears to hear, our hearts to hear, so that we might not just hear, but we might hear and listen. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us into all truth today for the glory of our risen Christ. We pray in his name, amen. I want to take a look really quickly. I know you're already in Daniel chapter 6, um, but I want to read to you a couple verses out of the book of Hebrews that bear on our story today. Because um, we have probably one of the most famous stories in all the Bible today. It's Daniel. And when you think of Daniel, what do you usually think of? 
Lions, yes, 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 yes. So we're talking about Daniel and the lion's dead today. What an incredible thing, a uh, story that we can go into. Um, I want to read for you, though, briefly, just a couple words out of the book of Hebrews. Let me get there. There we go. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about heroes of the faith. Talks about heroes of the faith. In fact, this is how Hebrews 11, 1 starts. It starts by defining faith for us. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. It's the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. I like to oftentimes um, use the word trust for the word faith because faith can have this like very like cognitive, like this heady kind of idea to it. For someone to trust God or to have faith in God, it means that they're believing in something that's been proven or that is something that has been promised to them, um, but has not been fully seen yet. And it goes through this whole line of faith. It talks about like, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command. It goes to, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice. We kind of go through Old Testament history here. By faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah. All of these people are listed in this hall of faith because they had a trust even before seeing Jesus the Messiah. Even before having that finality of the cross and the resurrection, they trusted in something that God was going to do to redeem them from where they were at in their sins. And we come to later in the book of Hebrews, and it says this. What more can I say? Verse 32 says, Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith or who by trusting God conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword and gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle and put foreign enemies to flight. When we enter the story of Daniel, here's what I want you to get. It's a story of faith. It's a story of Daniel trusts God to do something that he couldn't do. His confidence was not in himself. His confidence was in his relationship with God in Christ alone, even though Jesus had not yet come to this world to pay for his sins and to seal that forever. The idea is this. These people trusted God in their everyday lives and trust is not arrogance. Trust isn't arrogance. It's a confident expectation that what God has said, God will do. It's a confident expectation that what God has said, God will do. Trust is not arrogance, but it's practiced this way by yielding your life to God and saying, God, I care more about what you care about than what I care about. God, you've promised this. I'm going to stand on the authority of your word. And that's how Daniel ends up in the lion's den. Some of the shows that we like to watch, they give this like flashback where they go, boom, and you're like, what's going on? Why is this here? And it takes a couple minutes to find out through the story why that character is in the situation they were in. You might think of this story as, let me turn on my thing here, maybe. Would you go to the next slide for me, please? Uh, and the next slide after that. There we go. You might think of it as this. Daniel gets dropped into the middle of a whole bunch of lions. And he's going, God... What now? Now, it's interesting because Daniel at this point is not young. 
if we take, and I'll show you a chart on this in a couple minutes, but if we take that he comes to Babylon when he's about 15 as a captive of, of Judea and of Jerusalem, he's probably in his 80s when he comes to this moment. This is near the ending of Daniel's life, and he's learned over and over and over what it means that God has promises and that God will keep them. So Daniel finds himself in this moment, but the question is, is how does he get there, and why on earth would someone do this? The most important thing about Daniel is this, and this is what leads to him getting put in a lion's den. He walked with God. He walked with God. And he knew what mattered to God. The next most important thing about Daniel is that he yielded his life to God in order to do what was right in a way that was right. And so we, we could maybe just summarize it this way. Relationship with the living God and a calling to authentically represent him in his world is something that Daniel took very seriously. It's what landed him here with a whole lot of other colorful detail. Now, before we read the text in Daniel chapter 6, um, a quick note about Darius. We're introduced to a new king in this chapter. Last chapter, it was Belshazzar. The time before, we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's book comprises several decades and it actually comprises several kingdoms. We go from Daniel being in Jerusalem, chapter one, being carted off to Babylon, chapter one, and then into chapter two. And then we find out more about Nebuchadnezzar, kind of the, the ruler of the whole known world at this time. Then we have um, a couple of other kings come in. We have people like Belshazzar who loses the kingdom. We have Darius the Mede who comes in in this kingdom. And there's also a guy named Cyrus the Great. Darius is essentially, he's called king, but he's essentially a governor under the realm of Cyrus the Great um, in the area of Babylon. In other words, he's not king over the full Persian empire. There's someone else who is, but he has the status and the authority and the power of a king for the places where he is currently at. Uh, he's a guy who, who comes to power around 538 BCE. And uh, he also probably is known by other names in other historical records. If you want to come to the second hour, we can talk about that more. Simply put, Darius is a Median king. That doesn't mean average. It means that he comes from the Medes. He's a Median king, and he is in charge of this area. And that's where we enter into this conversation. But we're also probably not in the place of Babylon at this point. Likely, we are in the area known as Ekbatana. Can you say that? Ekbatana. Yeah, it's kind of a weird name, but it's what becomes the capital of the Persian Empire in the ensuing time after Nebuchadnezzar and other kings. Here's a, a, a picture of it today. Uh, as you can see, not a ton of excavation work has been done here, but this was capital of the Persian Empire. Another photo. Here's some of the excavation work that has been done. And this is where the, the kingship goes. It goes from Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar was. Another king comes in and it kind of constantly moves to a different place depending on where you're at and what you're doing. So Daniel's likely about 500 miles east of where he spent a lot of his life and a lot of his service to the king. And here's where we're going to find our story. So if you'd turn with me, please, if you're not there already, to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read the first couple verses, and then we'll kind of take this piece by piece. Darius, king we already talked about, decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. He stationed them throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Now, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. 
So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they couldn't find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went to the king and said to him, may Darius the king live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict, sign the documents so that as a law of the, media, or the Medes and the Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So Darius signed the document. What we find out in these first chapters or these verse, first few verses of Daniel chapter 6 is that there's a new order. So you have Darius at the top, and then you have different administrators that he places over the kingdom. You have one, you have another, and then you have Daniel. And then you, under that, you have 40 satraps. I just divided the 40 under the three because it worked that way. I don't know that that's how it worked, but basically it went Darius, three admins, and 120 satraps. They were in charge of making sure that everything went in the kingdom the way it should. They, they were in charge of making sure that the king was not defrauded and that they administered justice and all these things according to Darius's wishes in the ways that he wanted. So Daniel's there. And it's interesting because he's probably in his 80s when he's called to this position. He's already served under Nebuchadnezzar. He served on other under kings. And, and so there's something about Daniel that would cause someone to take someone from a past organization and bring them in to trust them to administer. And, and we see that there is something incredibly special about Daniel. And it's that he is trustworthy. When the king Darius looks at him, he sees him as having an extraordinary spirit and he's distinguished above all of these things, not just because he has an extraordinary spirit, because he's trustworthy, verse four says, and he's no negligence or corruption. Now just think for a moment, a government administrator with no negligence or corruption not going to say anything. Just think about that though. Just think about that in our world today and back then. Most of us, many of us, I should say, spend our life trying to get ahead. How am I going to get to this? How am I going to maximize this for myself here? Here's Daniel, who's not only really good at what he does, he's incredibly competent, but he also is incredibly honest. That combination together Wow, stands out so much so that you have a different organization chart that comes into play, this one. You have Darius who looks at Daniel and he says, oh, I would like to actually take you from being not just one of the three, but I want you to be essentially second in command to me. And it's not the only time this has happened to Daniel. Daniel's consistently promoted throughout his life because God is doing something in Daniel, not only to preserve himself and the Jewish people, but he's also doing something to allow Daniel the authority and the opportunity to speak to the powers of this day and to proclaim God in the midst of them. So this is what Darius wants to do. 
Um, here's a, a nice chart from the Moody Bible Commentary that just, if we take 15 as the starting age of Daniel's life, this is about how it would look. You have that 605 B.C., or BCE, you have that when he's 15, he's brought to Babylon. You come to 1850, 67, 70, 81, 81, 82, 83. Basically, the idea is this. Daniel comprises a whole lot of his life. And in this whole lot of his life, he has a lot of consistent walking, consistent living. What does it mean to follow God today is Daniel's question for himself constantly. You also notice that the book is not in chronological order. Uh, We've talked about that a little bit before. If that bothers you, I'm sorry it does, but it's actually ordered by Hebrew, Aramaic, Hebrew. Um, It's ordered by language. So Daniel is being asked, will you come and will you serve in this second in command role? When this happens, though, there's some people who aren't terribly happy about it. These are the other administrators uh, and other satraps who go to the king, and they begin to say, may Darius live forever. And notice what they say in verse 7, all the administrators of the kingdom have this opinion. Well, that right there is a bold-faced lie because Daniel's one of the administrators. They're trying to represent for something bigger than what they actually are, but they're trying to represent something because they want to try and get rid of Daniel. And when you can't control, uh, or when you can't go after someone's competency, you'll try to go after their integrity. And when you can't go after their integrity, what are you left to, what's left to do, but then to try to make something up to smear them and to take them out. Uh, someone sent me a quote from uh, Pastor Alistair Begg this week, and it went something like this. When people cannot find anything wrong with your character or can't find anything wrong with your competency, what they will do is they will try to malign your character any way they can. And the people here in question, notice what they say in verse five. They say, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of God. Would it be that when people look at your life and at my life, they would look at us and they would say, I cannot find anything morally or um, actual wrong with what they're doing. I have to make up something about their God in order to change their situation. What this means is that Daniel lived such a consistent life of faithfulness before them that when they looked at Daniel, they saw Yahweh and they went, we don't honor Yahweh, so we got to take him out this way. But what a clear picture Daniel lived in front of them. I love it. While many head to retirement around the 80s or before, Daniel, he jumps into this next adventure in his life. He so distinguishes himself that Darius puts him in charge here. Now, um, these people, possibly jealous of his position, uh, wanting what he has, not wanting him to rise to this next level of authority, they go to the king And they say, establish this as a law that no one should pray or petition anyone except the king for the next 30 days. This idea of petition here uh, refers to prayers or requests that would be made towards a deity. Now, Persian kings did not typically think of themselves as deity. They're kind of different in that way. Um, Some other kings and other rulers throughout the course of time essentially saw themselves as being a god. Persian kings didn't see them that way, but they did see themselves as being a mediator uh, with deity, a priestly mediator between the people and 
and the gods of the world, lowercase g. The purpose here is basically this. Um, Darius doesn't mind having his ego scratched a little bit. And he probably also wants to establish a degree of authority with the people. He wants to make sure that as this new Medo-Persian empire kicks off, because we're early into this, he wants to make sure that, that he has the right administration, that people see him for who he is, and they don't look elsewhere for other gods in their life. Read with me, please, beginning in chapter 10 as we continue the story. This, this law is, is put into place. The document is signed. Verse 10 says this, When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upper room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees. He prayed and he gave thanks to his God. Sorry, gave thanks to his God, yeah, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group. They found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Did you sign, didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any man who petitions any God or man except you, the king will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased and he set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went to the king and said to him, you as king know it is law, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought, placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. So the leader set a trap for Daniel because they knew that he petitioned his God. Not, that, not only did he just petition his God, Daniel had a regular practice of engaging with God. Three times a day, he'd go up probably to the second story of where he's living, and he would kneel, which is one of the biblical postures of prayer. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. He would kneel, and he would face towards Jerusalem. That practice goes back to ancient times. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8 and Chronicles and other places where there's this practice during Solomon's day, even maybe as early as David's day, where they would face towards Jerusalem, especially when they weren't there. They'd face towards the temple and they would, they would ask God for mercy, that they would, they, they would seek God's face. We have an idea of some of the prayers that Daniel may have prayed. One of the common prayers at this time, especially three times a day, is the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. It's the central command and affirmation of the Jewish people. It's also what Jesus says is the cornerstone of all the law and the prophets. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. But we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9 in a couple weeks, and we'll see this, this really long prayer where, where Daniel is just, he's, he's petitioning God, and he's asking God for mercy. The content of this prayer is likely something where, where Daniel is asking God for mercy for his people. In fact, the word imploring here in verse 11 means to ask for compassion 
or mercy. And here you find Daniel. And I love the way that the passage starts in verse 10. It says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into the house. He's asking for mercy, but he's going to the absolute source of everything in his life. Just think, what, what are the things Daniel could have done? Uh, upon hearing this order, he, he could have gone into an inner room and prayed there. He could have faced Jerusalem in a way that perhaps the people wouldn't have seen him. He, he could have prayed silently. You know, Jesus later is, is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The idea is not that you pray publicly or you pray quietly. It's that um, the people in Jesus' day wanted to be seen and heard for their many words. They wanted people to look at them as being religious because of their prayer. Here, Daniel, though, exhibits a prayerfulness, a seeking of God's face when it's going to likely cost him. He knowingly does this. He, he doesn't stop his personal spiritual practices. In fact, he goes, he gets down on his knees, he prays, and he gives thanks to his God. He gives thanks to Yahweh. Just imagine, you, you, your life is essentially kind of flashing before your eyes. You've been told that the king has signed an order that if you pray or petition anyone except for the king for 30 days... You'll be thrown into the lion's den. And what does Daniel do? He kneels down and he says, Father, I give you thanks. Give you thanks. Thankfulness is a spirit of gratitude regardless of what is going on in your life. You could be having the best day of your life. Guess what? We're entitled to give thanks. You could be having the worst day of your life. We're called, commanded to give thanks. Daniel kneels, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. He trusts the God who brought him there and who had been his keeper all of his life. He petitions, he implores his God. In other words, he continues to model an authentic walk with God in the presence of others. And here's the point of, I think, why he goes to pray. If he were to stop praying, the people around him who did not know Yahweh would look and say, see, his faith really isn't real. It's a secondary thing. When there's lions involved, Daniel will cave to the lions and not honor his God. I think one of the reasons Daniel prays, I think there's two reasons Daniel prays. Number one is this. He has this walk with God, this vertical relationship with God that animates dynamically everything he does. All right? This is a vertical line for those of you on the podcast who cannot see this. This is a vertical line. It's nothing, I'm not going crazy here. It's a vertical line. What mattered to Daniel, first and foremost, was this relationship right here. What drove him in every way was his walk with Yahweh, his dependence on Yahweh, his trust in Yahweh, all the promises that he had heard about a Messiah coming, all the promises that he had heard and will hear about God coming to bring his people back into the land. He's saying, I'm going to trust, number one, 
God. Why? Because he had a dynamic relationship with God. All right? Dynamic relationship with God. He engages in this vertical walk, this authentic walk that animates everything he does. But he also cares about this. He cares about how his life looks to everyone outside of his circle. Not in a, I'm Daniel, look at me kind of way, but in a, when you see me, you see Yahweh. When you see me, Daniel wanted to reflect Yahweh in such a way that when they looked at him, they would see this. Because this is the dynamic part of his life that mattered most. The most important thing about Daniel was this vertical relationship with God. God came first in all things. Representing Yahweh to other people mattered. And, And I don't think Daniel was trying to cram his faith down their throats. But neither would do I think that he would settle for anything less than someone else from the outside, wherever they're at, seeing anything less than the glory of God working through him. Daniel lived faithfully in honor of God. He worked with great excellence for his bosses, but he worked truly as unto the Lord. I think his constant refrain would have been, let me show you, my God. Let me show you the wonders that he does. Let me show you how he interprets your vision. Let me show you how he has been faithful to our people. He didn't separate his faith from his work. Rather, he modeled this authentic faith with God, this authentic walk with God in the midst of other people. And he maintained practices like prayer that kept him dependent upon God. His vertical relationship with God, in other words, was the motor for the rest of his life. I think it was John Calvin, don't quote me on this, but essentially said this, prayer is an act of dependence upon God. Prayer is an act, an attitude of dependence upon God. When Daniel goes to seek his God, he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm here. Maybe he said, God, I don't really want to be here, but I trust you in the middle of this. God, you're enough for me. I don't have to worry about the other stuff. What I need to worry about is this, because from this, all of life flows. So the conspirators, they they go to the king. They force this issue over the next several verses there. And they say, you know, it's a lot of the meat and Persians. It can't be revoked. Oh, king, you have to be honest to your word. Daniel prays three times a day. But notice what the king does. As soon as the king heard this, verse 14, he was very displeased. When a king gets displeased, it's not a good thing. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. So it's fascinating. Here you have the king, and the king is going to be a a central player in the story for the next couple verses. We're going to see the king is scurrying for the rest of that day, because judgments would often come at the end of the day, the beginning of the new day, so so that that sundown time. And um, he's trying to find, is there any way that legally I could change this? Is there anything I could do in order to change this reality. But there's not. So the king is forced up against the corner. Uh, He gave the order. They bring Daniel. They throw him into the lion's den. But notice the king says, may your God, may your God, whom you serve continually rescue you. What the king saw, he he didn't have the same faith as Daniel, but what he saw was that Daniel was all about this. And he says, 
May the God with whom you are in that dynamic relationship with, may he rescue you because the king couldn't. So a stone is brought, the king sealed it, other people seal it just to make sure that no one tries to sneak him out. And the king goes to his palace. And I love it because what's recorded here is not, and Daniel fretted and Daniel did this and Daniel did this. Notice what it says. Verse 18, the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. We're getting a picture of the king. He's restless. He's agitated. There's nothing he can do. Verse 19, though, says this. Read with me, please. At the first light of the dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said. "Has Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? I don't know how long the pause was. But in verse 21, it says, Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They haven't hurt me, for I was found innocent before him. Also, I have not committed a crime against you, my king. The king was overjoyed, gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den uninjured, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives, they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. What a a story, right? Then King Darius wrote to these people of every people, of every nation and language who live in all the earth. And he says this to them. He sends an ancient email, basically. Um, May your prosperity abound. I issued a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Daniel is trapped by lions. But in the middle of this awful setting, he has peace. The king is agitated. The king is concerned. When Daniel cries out the next morning, he says, my God sent his angel and he has shut the lion's mouth. Now, I don't know if Daniel like talked to these animals at night. I, I don't know if he was like, hey, hope you eat something sometime. Hopefully it's not me. I don't know what his engagement with this was other than he trusted God. He, he had an active, I think, prayer walk that night uh, while he's surrounded by lions. Lions often, actually in ancient periods, were used by nobilities to hunt. It actually predates the time of the Persians. And so you have things like this from about the 640s. This is a, 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 a carving from the Assyrian period of lions coming out of a den. They would use, they'd be used for sports, sometimes kept in a cave, a cistern, or a pit. But the king, as he yells out, I want you to notice what he says. He's crying out in anguish, but verse 20 says this, Daniel, servant of the living God. Servant of the living God. Up up until this point, as far as I know, Daniel is just called Daniel 
or maybe by his Persian name. Here he's called Daniel, servant of the living God. Living God is one of the most characteristic um, Old Testament titles for Yahweh. Living God is, is not just, one writer says, the God who is alive, but he's the God who gives life and is continually active. When Daniel's down there with the lions, he's not serving a God who's somehow aloof or distant or doesn't care about his circumstance. He's actually serving a God who gives life and is continually active. Whatever the, the, the decision, whatever Yahweh would have done with that, whether he would have sent the angel to shut his mouth, the, the lion's mouth, or something else, Daniel serves a God who is alive and continually active. It, it's a phrase that's used to describe the living God who speaks out of the fire at Sinai in Deuteronomy 5. It, it's a phrase in Joshua chapter 3 that describes how God drives out Israel's enemies. It, it's a phrase that's used in 1 Samuel 17 where David uses this name against Goliath. He says, I come to you in the name of the living God. There's one God who's alive. It's also used in one other place in 2 Kings 19, where Hezekiah invokes this God against the Assyrians. It's a name that describes a God who is continually active and gives life to his people. What we see here is the one who is supposed to be strong in the king is actually weak. And that's one of the messages of Daniel. You have this kingdom rise, 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 but there's one king who is eternal. There's one king who endures forever, and that's the living God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Daniel. It's he who endures forever, and his kingdom will never be destroyed after throwing the true traitors to some very hungry lions, and they, you know, in contrast, they, they crush all their bones and they overpower them pretty much immediately. Yeah, because before they reach the bottom of the den, you see this great power of God, a God who preserves his people. Good hope for the Jewish people who are in exile during this season of their national life. But you have, in amidst all this, the Bible again answering this fundamental question. I, I told you this several weeks ago. The, the Bible doesn't primarily address whether God exists. It assumes that. Rather, in fact, all the peoples of the ancient world ex believed that gods existed. The question is, is which God do you serve? Which God do you serve is the question that the Bible asks over and over and over again. And the answer here is for Daniel and those around him, there's only one God whom they serve, the living God. The God who meets them in their every day with his power, with his might, with his grace, and with his faithfulness. And so we're left really with a couple of fundamental questions. The first one is this, whom do you serve? Wh whom do you serve? This word serve here, it's um, in, verse, um, in verse 20. Daniel, servant of the living God. It literally means to have a dynamic relationship between two or more parties. That's what it means. It, the, the idea of service is not just, yeah, I serve and then I go do whatever I want. It's to have this active, dynamic relationship with God. 
It's a title that's used of people like Moses, servant of God. It's someone who goes to God with everything, not because they've been, not because they've made themselves holy or made themselves worthy, but because God has first come to them. In fact, that's what scripture says. We love because he first loved us and he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John talks about the fundamental question for you and I today is whom do I serve? Am I active dynamic relationship with the God who has redeemed and saved me? Or am I serving, giving my time, my attention, my priorities, my affections to other things? Nowhere is this more true than in a day in which we are constantly called by culture and all other things to bow down to this or to bow down to this or to bow down to this. Whether you're in your place of employment or you're in your school, whether you are a, um, an athlete and you're on the field, we're always constantly challenged with, am I going to live out of my identity and my relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, or am I going to live with a different source? My self-effort, my flesh, my, my, my legalism, my, my guilt, my shame. What are you going to live from? God designed us to be people who have all we need in Christ. I said it earlier, one of the pictures of baptism is that Christ actually becomes our life. For, for Christ to become our life, it means this. And I, I love the way one of, my former, one of my former pastors described the word grace. Grace is the power to do what is right and the desire to do what's right. And it's only found in an active dynamic relationship with God. The, the, the only way we walk forward in life is by saying, God, I need you to meet me here. Because if I walk forward without God, I'll fall flat on my face pretty quickly. Friends, where's your vertical relationship? Do you have a vertical relationship? If you don't have a vertical relationship, God says to you today, I love you. I set my one and only son to die on the cross so that we might have this kind of a walk. We're not just saved for the rest of eternity. We are. When we come to faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, we're actually given life and purpose for today. We're actually given power in our living today. The, the most important thing about Daniel was that he was a child of God. Granted, this is before Jesus came. It's, it's before all of this stuff took place. But he's someone who Hebrews says, by faith, by, by trusting what, he, what his eyes couldn't see, what he fully hadn't seen revealed completely yet, he had eyes of faith to say, God will be faithful. God will redeem. God will do a work in me because I can't do work in myself. For, for Daniel... For Daniel, the most important thing about him is that he was loved and cared for by God. What gave him power was this. The most important thing about you and I is this. It has to be what drives everything you and I do. Everything. 
One of our prayers, church, should be, when I go into, name the place where you're going into tomorrow or today, Father, I want them to see Jesus in me. Not in an inauthentic way, but I want them to see it so powerfully, but when they look at it, they go, man, that lady is a servant of the Most High. They're a servant of God. I don't even know what that means, but she's definitely serving someone else, not the things of this world. He, he, he walked in and, and not only is he really good at what he does and he's ethical in all the things in business, but there's something that drives him and it's this honest, dynamic relationship with God. The most important thing about you and I is that we've been invited into this dynamic relationship with the living God whose grace, his power, and his desire enables us to serve him. And friends, that's how we live like Daniel. We don't live like Daniel by saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to keep trying harder. We live like Daniel by saying, God, I want to hear your voice today. I want to walk in your ways. And God, I need you for that. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, we come again as dependent people. We come again as people who who cannot make ourselves righteous before you. But through the gift of Jesus' death and his resurrection, God, we can be made righteous. And God, through the power of your spirit, you can cause us to walk in your ways. And Lord, many of us face that in this world today. We're faced with the choice of, of whether we'll honor you or whether we'll go our own path and our own desires and our own ends. God, we're faced with whether or not the powers and the pressures of this world will cause us to doubt our trust in our relationship with you. And God, you've given us your words so that we know what matters to your heart, but God, you've given us your spirit so that we can walk in power and authority in humility and in grace. And God, we need you. We absolutely need you. God, may the first thing, may the constant refrain of the people in our lives be when they look at us, that we serve the living God. Thank you, God, for redeeming and transforming our hearts through faith. Thank you, God, that when we were helpless, when we were dead in our sin and our transgressions, that Christ came. God, you know the things in our life that we're struggling with right now. Give us eyes of faith to see what you want to do in and through us. Help us to know you better through the challenges that we face this week. They may not be lion's dens, but God, they matter. They absolutely matter. We bless you, God. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, we thank you that you care more about us and you care more about this world than we could ever begin to think, imagine, or dream. 
Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. You are sovereign over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.